For our time of study in God's Word this morning, uh, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 22. Revelation chapter 22. Uh, we come this morning to the final uh, sermon and our verse-by-verse study through this book of Revelation. And uh, we come to verse uh, 14. And my goal today, Lord willing, is to cover verses 14 through 21. And the title of the message is Seven More Responses to Revelation. Seven More Responses to Revelation. Near the end of his uh, commentary on the book of Revelation, uh, the commentator uh, Dennis Johnson writes a conclusion And the title of the conclusion is, What Should This Book Do to Us? And toward the beginning of that conclusion, he reminds us of what we are dealing with whenever we are dealing with Scripture and studying it. He says, and I quote, Scripture is not a passive cadaver waiting for curious medical students to dissect it in their quest for information. It, the scripture, is a living, double-edged sword that proceeds from the mouth of the triumphant Son of Man and pierces the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It is a hammer that shatters, a seed that grows, and rainfall that never returns to its giver without accomplishing the mission on which he sent it. The statement by Dennis Johnson is true of all Scripture, but this morning we will continue to face this truth with regard to the book of Revelation that we have been studying over the past year and a half. Last week we studied verses 6 through 13 of Revelation 22, a passage in which the Holy Spirit is endeavoring to channel our response toward the worship of God and a greater devotion to Jesus Christ in response to all that we have encountered in the book of Revelation. And in that text last Sunday, we saw verse 7, look at that verse, which says, blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Sadly, not everyone has been interested over the last 2,000 years in giving proper heed to the words of the book of Revelation. We all know what Thomas Jefferson did with the gospel accounts, cutting out those portions that did not fit with his worldview. As for what he did with the book of Revelation, he said, late in his life, these words, It is between 50 and 60 years since I last read the book of Revelation. I then considered it merely the ravings of a maniac, no more worthy nor capable of explanation than the incoherence of our own nightly dreams, unquote. In his commentary on the book of Revelation, Robert Thomas quotes another writer who says, and I quote, the book of Revelation either finds you mad or leaves you mad. You have to be crazy to try to find out what it's all about. And if you're not, you will be when you finished, unquote. Well, I don't think we've been crazy to be studying this book over the last 17 months or so, and I think I'm actually saner today than I was 17 months ago because of this book of Revelation. In fact, I think a big part of John's purpose in this book is to help Christians to maintain their sanity in a world gone crazy, and that will happen so long as we give this book the proper response that it deserves. And to that end, this morning, we will be looking at the final eight verses of Revelation, and we're going to continue to allow the Holy Spirit to coach us 
and to shape our response to all that we have learned and studied and encountered in this book of Revelation. We saw seven responses last Sunday in verses 6 through 13. This morning, we will observe seven more responses that we should have to all that we have encountered in the book of Revelation. And the first that we will look at today is, number one, we should make sure our robes are washed. We should make sure our robes are washed. Observe what is said to John in verse 14. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Speaking of the new Jerusalem. This is the seventh and the final blessing found in the book of Revelation. And this blessing is for those who wash their robes. A good rendering of what is being said here is blessed are those who are getting their robes washed. As for how we get our robes washed, back in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14, we saw a multitude of whom it was said, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So that's how you get your robes washed, by washing them in the blood of Jesus Christ, in the blood of the Lamb, until your robes are clean. The language of this blessing means that the blessed ones evidently are those who recognize that their robes need washing in the first place. Blessed are those who understand that their robes in their original state are filthy and defiled by sin. Blessed are those who are aware that all of their own righteousness apart from Christ is as filthy rags. Blessed are those who believe in Jesus Christ and get their robes washed in his blood until they are clean. Blessed are those believers in Jesus Christ who seek to live a righteous life and who try to keep their garments unstained by the sin of this world. And whenever they do sin, they run to Jesus and obtain cleansing through his blood. Blessed are those such persons who are experiencing cleansing through the blood of Christ are blessed for the reasons stated in verse 14, where we're told what results from a person getting their robes washed in this way. The text says, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. We've already learned in the last chapter that the tree of life will be in the new Jerusalem, even in this chapter. And John is saying that someone who is right now getting his robes washed through the blood of Christ will have authorization given to them by God to eat from the tree of life whenever they please. Additionally, John says that such a one may enter by the gates into the city. We learned in the previous chapter that the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God, has 12 gates, three on each side through which its inhabitants may enter forever. And here in verse 14, John is saying that someone whose robes are washed will be able to enter the new Jerusalem and enjoy the blessings of this eternal city and partake from the tree of life whenever he pleases. And I love the fact that the blessing of verse 14 does not say blessed is the perfect person who has never sinned and who has never needed his robe to be washed. That's not what this text says. The blessing is for the one who once had a filthy robe that needed washed, and they got it washed. 
in the blood of the Lamb. So please do not think that your filthiness and your sin disqualifies you permanently from the tree of life and from eternity with God. What will disqualify you is if you are so proud as to think that your robes don't need washing. And if you fail to come to Jesus for the washing that only he can provide, you may be right now in this moment as I speak the filthiest person spiritually in this room because of the sins you've committed throughout your life and maybe even this past week. But if you come to Jesus today and let him wash you in his blood, then you literally can become a blessed one today and one day have access to the tree of life and live forever with God in the new Jerusalem. That's what this verse teaches. There's a second response that we should have to all that we have encountered and read in the book of Revelation. And let's word it this way. We should hate sin in all of its forms. We should hate sin in all of its forms. Observe what the angel says in verse 15. He's just spoken of those who can enter the new Jerusalem and partake of the tree of life. So look at his description of those who are left outside this city. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, uh, a lot of us in this room love dogs, uh, so it may sadden us to read here in this verse that there will be no dogs in the New Jerusalem, but just to comfort you here, given the descriptions that follow in this verse, we can know that John is talking here about people who live like dogs, like wild dogs. The word dogs here speaks of malicious human beings who scavenge through the filth of this world and who devour people viciously in pursuit of what they want. On one level, John defines who the dogs are by the descriptions that follow here in verse 15. Look at these. The sorcerers are those who practice witchcraft, who make use of drugs to achieve an altered state of consciousness, and who commune with the spirit world through the use of those drugs, and who prescribe such practices for others. Those are the sorcerers. The immoral persons are those who break the seventh and the tenth commandment and engage in sex outside the bounds of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Or they engage in immoral fantasies without repentance. The murderers are those who break the sixth commandment and take the lives of others, either physically or they murder people in their hearts through hatred and through anger. The idolaters are those who break the first and the second of the Ten Commandments, and they worship anything other than the true God. And then look at the last description here. Everyone who loves and practices lying are those who break the Ninth Commandment, who lie and who speak falsehoods whenever it suits their agenda, either to hide themselves behind the lies that they tell or to slander others with malicious intent. And notice here that John doesn't just speak of everyone who practices lying, but of everyone who loves and practices lying. These are those who love the lies that they tell and they love the lies that other people tell them because it suits their lifestyle and furthers their agenda. As for the truth, they suppress the truth 
so that they can live in unrighteousness. They hate the truth of God's word and will even try to outlaw the speaking of God's truth, as some are doing today. Such people desire that people speak to them the sweet little lies that leave them feeling justified in their sin, and they will happily speak those same lies to others so that others will be deceived into joining them in their rebellion against God. And in verse 15 here, guys, John says that all such persons being described here will be left outside the New Jerusalem. They will never have the privilege of eating from the tree of life. They will never see God's face and enjoy God's company the way that the righteous will, the way that those who got their robes washed will. Instead, their fate will be the lake that burns with fire and brimstone forever and ever. And we ought to respond to all that we've encountered in the book of Revelation by knowing this to be true and by hating the sins that reduce the souls of men and women to this horrible fate of being banished outside the New Jerusalem forever. There's a third response that we should have to all that we've encountered and read in the book of Revelation. Let's word it this way. We should look to Jesus. We should look to Jesus as the rising Davidic, as in David, the rising Davidic star of history. Observe what Jesus himself says in verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I quoted from Bart Ehrman last week who stated that, in his opinion, the author of Revelation presents a viewpoint that he says is the opposite of the teaching of Jesus. But here in verse 16, Jesus is pointing to all that John has written in this book, and he speaks to all of us. Pay close attention to this. Look at what he says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you. And that word you is plural in the Greek. He's not talking to John here. He's talking to you. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Jesus here is vouching for all that John has written in the book of Revelation. Essentially, he's saying, I'm the one who told John to write down everything that he has written for the benefit of all of you in the churches. As for himself, he says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Ultimately, I want you to know that this revelation in this book comes from me, who is the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And notice how Jesus describes himself here in relation to David. He describes himself as both the root and the descendant of David. In other words, he's describing himself as the root from which David sprang and also as the descendant who sprang from David. In other words, Jesus is both the creator of David and the descendant of David. And he is the greater David who is to inherit the throne of David and reign forever and ever. Jesus also describes himself here as the bright morning star, which is a wonderful description of Jesus. The morning star is the heavenly body that appears in the east just before the dawning of the day. When a person looks toward the eastern 
horizon and sees the morning star appear in the night sky, they can know that day is about to dawn. So what Jesus is saying here is that he is, he himself is the morning star. He's telling us that in his first coming, he is the morning star that serves as the harbinger of the new day to come that he himself will usher in at his second coming. And even since his first coming 2,000 years ago, write down this reference, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Peter speaks of the morning star arising in the hearts of believers, teaching us that Jesus arising in the hearts of those who believe in him is a further harbinger of the dawning of the glorious day that is still yet to come when the Lord returns and establishes kingdom, his kingdom, and beyond that brings in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem when the glory of God and the glory of the Lamb will be so bright that the inhabitants of the new earth and of the new Jerusalem will have no need of the sun. Back in Revelation 2, verse 28, we read it earlier this morning. Jesus speaks about the overcomer, and he says, I will give him the morning star. In other words, what he's saying is, if you become an overcomer by faith in Christ and through his blood that was shed for you at the cross, Jesus will give you the gift of himself And we learn here in verse 16 that a proper response to the book of Revelation is to look to Jesus and to embrace him as the rising Davidic star of history, the one who will one day reign in complete triumph over the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem forever. There's a, yet another response that we should have to all that we have encountered and read in the book of Revelation. Number four, let's say it this way. This is kind of wordy. We should come to Jesus and drink of the water of life and invite others to do the same. We should come to Jesus and drink of the water of life and invite others to do the same. It may be Jesus who is still speaking in verse 17, or it may be John. It's hard to know for sure. Either way, observe what John writes in verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Now, there are different opinions amongst commentators about the invitation spoken at the beginning of verse 17 here. Some really good commentators understand the spirit and the bride to essentially be speaking to Jesus and urging him to come or to return. And this is possible Very possible, but I find myself agreeing with those commentators who understand the spirit and the bride to be speaking to mankind and inviting people to come to Jesus. And if we understand the beginning of verse 17 in this way, then the beginning of this verse is an invitation to all who are presently unbelievers There is no doubt that when the book of Revelation was read to the seven churches of Asia Minor, that there would have been non-believers in attendance who needed to hear this invitation, just as there are some of you in this room right now who need to hear this invitation to come to Jesus. But guys, even believers need to hear this call to keep on coming to Jesus every day. In fact, in John chapter 6, in verse 35, Jesus literally says, He who is continually coming to me 
shall not hunger, and he who is continually believing in me shall never thirst. The Christian life is not a life in which a person comes to Christ one time on the day of their conversion and that's it. No, it's a lifestyle of continually coming to Jesus. So let's say it this way. To you who have not yet come to Jesus for salvation, the Holy Spirit says to you, come. The bride of Christ, which is the church of saved persons, says to you, come. Come to Jesus and get your robes washed in his blood. Repent of your sins and believe in him for the salvation that only he can give to you. Get up from your sin and say to yourself, I will arise and go to Jesus. And don't wait another moment to do that. Don't put it off to another day. Don't wait for a more convenient hour. Come to Jesus right now. You can do that right now in this moment. And to those of you who are saved and you believed in Jesus, the Spirit and the Bride of Christ, the church, say to you, keep on coming to Jesus. Keep on looking to him and calling upon his name. In your moments of temptation, come to him and ask him to save you from the sin that you are being tempted by. When you have sinned, come to Jesus, confessing your sin to him, and seek his forgiveness and cleansing. When you are weak and hurting and discouraged, keep coming to him. When you are empty and need to be filled, come to Jesus. When you are joyful and you need someone to share in those joys with Come to Jesus. Keep on coming to him. The spirit and the bride continue speaking in verse 17 and say, let the one who hears say, come. In other words, let anyone who hears this invitation and responds to this invitation by coming to Jesus, let that person turn around and invite others to join them in coming to Jesus. The message here is come to Jesus and don't come alone. Invite others to come along with you too. The speaker of verse 17 continues and says, And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Are you thirsty? with a stubborn thirst that simply will not be quenched? Come to Jesus. Have you tried to satisfy your thirst by consuming all that the world has had to offer you and you're just as thirsty, if not even more than you were before? Come to Jesus. The truth is that the thirst that is in your heart that this world won't satisfy is ultimately a thirst for Jesus that only he can satisfy. So give heed to the invitation of this verse. The spirit and the bride say, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Do you desire the water of life that Jesus gives? Then bring your thirsty self to him and take the water of life without cost. You don't have to pay for this water. You don't have to earn it. Just come. And it is said here that you can have it for free. Not that the water is free, but Jesus has already paid the full price for this water and responding to this invitation is one of the right ways for you to respond to all that you have encountered in the book of Revelation. There's a fifth response that we should have to all that we've encountered and read in this book. 
Number five, we should not add or take away from the words of Revelation. We should not add or take away from the words of Revelation. Listen to what is said in verses 18 and 19. John says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. The warning that is given here applies to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, which would include the original hearers of the book of Revelation when it was read to them, and it would include all of us as we have studied through this book in recent months. And the warning delivered here is regarding the danger of adding to or taking away from the words of this book. And let's just think for a moment, like, why would it ever possess a person to do either of these two things, to take away or to add to the book of Revelation? Someone who hears the words of Revelation and then adds to them is someone who perhaps thinks that what has been revealed is insufficient and must be supplemented with additional prophecies. Or... They might add to its words in order to neutralize something that has been stated clearly in this book. Whatever the motivation, John is saying that one should never add to the prophetic words of this book, the book of Revelation. The commentator Robert Thomas, uh, this is some great food for thought, He believes that John here in these verses is declaring the end of all prophetic revelation, saying that this revelation contained in the book of Revelation here in 95 AD when it was written is the final prophetic word delivered in the church age and that any supposed prophecies that follow are false and to the eternal detriment Of those who utter them. And with this understanding of these verses, it is possible that verses 18 and 19 could be God's way of saying through John that this is the final book of the inspired canon of Scripture and the very last occasion in which the gift of prophecy was exercised for the benefit of the church in the church age. Someone who takes away from the words of Revelation would be someone who obviously doesn't like something that is said in this book, so they remove it. They act like it's not there, and there are many things in this book that one would be tempted to remove, right? There are things said in this book against the Nicolaitans and against a false prophetess called Jezebel. And her followers, along with things said against those who had embraced the deep things of Satan and against Jews who had slandered the Christians in these churches to a handful of the churches. As we read this morning, Jesus said that he had something against them and he calls them to repent after pointing out what it was that he had against them. In some of the churches, there were people leading others into immorality, and judgment is promised upon those who practice this immorality. The first three chapters of this book alone had enough offensive content to leave someone tempted to water down portions of Revelation so as not to offend even some of the seven churches that the letters are written to in the first three chapters. Imagine how hard it would be if you were the messenger bringing Jesus' letter to the Laodicean church and to get up in front of that church and to read that letter word for word 
exactly as Jesus delivered them. Beyond Jesus' message or messages to the churches, there are things said throughout the book of Revelation about the unrepentant wicked suffering torment forever and ever, a doctrine that is profoundly offensive to modern sensibilities. Beyond that, John knows that there are parts of this book that are heavy stuff for public consumption in the churches, but he wants this whole book to be read to the churches in its entirety with nothing left out. I should add here that what John says in these verses shows his awareness of the fact that what is in the book of Revelation was on par with Old Testament scripture Write down the reference, Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, where Moses speaks to the people of Israel and says, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it. And here John uses even stronger words than what Moses uses, showing us that he, John, viewed the book of Revelation as inspired revelation on par with any Old Testament book. In verse 18, John says that if anyone adds to the words of this book, then the plagues of this book will be added to him. In verse 19, he warns that if anyone takes away from the words of the book of Revelation, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. And a true believer in Christ will give heed to John's Warnings here and not tamper with the words of Revelation. In verses 18 and 19, the Spirit of God is teaching you and me that the right way to respond to the words of Revelation is to respect its words, to respect its prophecies, and to make sure that we do not add to them or take away from them in any way, shape, or form. There's a sixth response that we should have to all that we've encountered in this book. Number six, we should embrace the promise of Jesus coming and pray for his coming. We should embrace the promise of Jesus coming and actually pray for his coming. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. And then John replies saying, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. This is now the third time that we have heard Jesus make this promise regarding coming quickly, just in Revelation chapter 22 alone. In verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. In verse 12, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And in case we missed it, He says here in verse 20, yes, I am coming quickly. Seeing something three times in Scripture is a way of putting an exclamation point on what is being said, and that's what's happening here. I am coming quickly, exclamation point, Jesus is saying. Last week, we pondered why Jesus would promise to come quickly when, in fact, 2,000 years have gone by and he still has not returned. And I'm not going to review what we talked about last Sunday, but I will add one additional thought that we did not talk about. Jesus, guys, is self-aware enough in his omniscience to know that his people are anxious for him to return, right? And he has to know that in our minds, his return cannot happen quickly enough. He has to know that in our minds today, his having waited 2,000 years to return would feel anything but quick to us. He has to know that even for John in A.D. 95, his coming has taken longer 
than John likely expected. Even back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus reveals to us that in a future day, the martyred saints in heaven will be saying to God, how long? And God will have to tell them to wait a little while longer. And in light of this angst in both heaven and earth, why would Jesus say three times in this final chapter that he is coming quickly, especially given the fact that even heavenly saints in the future will think he's taking too long? I think part of Jesus' point is that no matter how long it takes before he comes, when he does come and accomplish all that he will accomplish, we will all look back, I promise you, and say, wow, that was quick. And the wait was hardly any wait at all. Amen? That's how every one of us is going to think after everything is said and done. And you all know from your own experience how hindsight always leaves us with a different perspective of time, right? My wife and I had all four of our children uh, come back into town this past December for Christmas. And Donna and I knew that they were coming uh, we knew that months in advance, and during those months where we were waiting, we often talked about how we could not wait for them to come, and the time seemed to drag by in the weeks leading up to when they would all be home. But after they arrived, and they were all together in the house with us, the weight of the previous months seemed like no weight at all. In fact, the weight almost seemed too short. And I kind of missed the excited anticipation of the waiting and looking forward to their coming. This is the way it's going to be when Jesus comes and accomplishes all that he is going to accomplish. Not a one of us will complain then about how long the wait was. After you and I, who have believed in Jesus, have experienced a trillion millennia multiplied by another trillion millennia in the New Jerusalem, the wait for Jesus' second coming will literally feel to us like it was less than a second in comparison. And Jesus, I think in part, is saying here in verse 20, trust me, after I have come, you will be fully of the opinion that I came quickly. Look again at verse 20 and notice John's response to Jesus' promise to come quickly. John says, amen, come, Lord Jesus. Amen is John's way of saying, so be it. He's saying, Jesus, I believe you that you are speaking truth and I want you to return or to come quickly. In fact, John then says to Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. Such a prayer from John shows us that he really wants Jesus to return. And his example here teaches us that it's perfectly legitimate for us to actually pray to Jesus and make requests of him to return or to come to earth. In fact, whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer and say, your kingdom come, we are essentially praying for King Jesus to come. But are you praying for the second coming of Christ? We should pray for that. And we should realize that when he does return in a future day. He will do so in answer to the prayers of millions of saints as they have prayed this prayer that John prays here down through the centuries. But I got to tell you guys, I, I cannot read John's prayer to Jesus here 
and not feel convicted over those times in my life when John's prayer was not my prayer. Before I was married, I remember hearing sermons on Christ's coming and thinking, literally, come, Lord Jesus, but wait until after I am married. I want to experience married life first. As a kid, and I'm telling the truth here of all Sundays to share this, I remember in the week before the Pittsburgh Steelers would play in a Super Bowl, and there were so many of them when I was a child. I remember actually thinking about the rapture and hoping that the rapture would not come before the Super Bowl. And in such moments, essentially, my prayer was, come, Lord Jesus, but wait until after the Super Bowl. Even more convicting, there have been times in my life when I've been in sin and I've been doing things that I knew that I should not have been doing. And I shuddered at the thought of Jesus coming while I was in the middle of my sin. And in such moments, my thinking was, come, Lord Jesus, but wait until after I am finished with my sin. Maybe you can identify with some of what I've just shared, or maybe not. Either way, you do realize it's not just anyone who can respond the way that John does here, right? His saying of amen and his prayer for Jesus to come is something that only a Christian who is walking with God would even want to pray. It's something that only a Christian who prizes Jesus Christ and his kingdom above all else could pray. Come, Lord Jesus, is the prayer of someone who knows that they are saved and they are confident that they are on Jesus' side and they are ready. Are you ready for Christ's return? Are you praying for it? I hope that you are. I hope this passage encourages you. John's example here teaches us that such readiness is a right and proper response to all that we have read in the book of Revelation. There's one final response that we should have to all that we've encountered in this book. Let's word it this way. We should relish the grace of Jesus that is with us now. We should relish the grace of Jesus that is with us now. Observe John's closing words of this book. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. It's interesting to note that to compare how the New Testament ends with how the Old Testament ends. In fact, the last 10 words of the Old Testament are found at the very end of Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. Here's the final 10 words of the Old Testament. Lest, this is God speaking, lest I come and smite the land with a curse, period. That's how the Old Testament ends. But the final 10 words of the New Testament are these. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. What a massive difference. And how instructive John's concluding words are for us as believers, because they point us to what we have in the here and now. Yes, we long for Jesus to come and for the glorious eternity that follows, but guess what? The grace of the Lord Jesus is with us now. We don't have to wait for his grace to arrive. It's with us right now. His unmerited favor, his saving and redeeming and forgiving grace is with us even now. His grace that empowers us to serve him is with us now, and we get to live in the good of this grace and all that it entails. And notice how John ends this book with the word, amen. John doesn't just say amen to the truth of Christ's coming in a future day, which he does, 
back in verse 20, he says amen to the fact that the grace of Christ is with us even now while we wait. And there's a whole lot of good for you and I in Christ to enjoy inside of the grace of Jesus right now. There might be some of you who, when you hear Jesus saying, I'm coming quickly, you say, amen, come Lord Jesus and get me out of this place. But then when you hear John say, in the meantime, the grace of the Lord Jesus is with you, and you respond with less excitement over that. That shouldn't be, actually. We should be just as enthusiastic in shouting amen to the truth that the unmerited favor of Christ is with us now as we are the truth of his coming in a future day. Think about it for a second. Think about your sins. Think about the fact that we all deserve to be in hell right now because of the sins that we have committed against God. If I personally got what I deserved from God, I would already be in eternity experiencing God's judgment for all of my sins. Yet I am here. And the grace of the Lord Jesus rather than the wrath of the Lord Jesus, is with me? Wow. That's something worth saying amen to. But John is actually saying even more than this in this final benediction. You'll notice in the New American Standard that this verse says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all rather than with you all. Some Greek manuscripts have the word you in this verse. Some manuscripts say the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. But some of the older Greek manuscripts simply have what we see here, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And if we should read this verse without the you in it, just as it stands in the New American Standard, then that means that John is not only wanting the grace of the Lord Jesus to be with us who are presently saved, but that he also wants the grace of Jesus to be with even others who are not yet saved, who may be saved through our outreach to them. Imagine me saying to you all this morning, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. How would those words fall on your ears? Well, I think you would know that you are included in that benediction, but you would also know that others are included too. And I think you would feel something of a call to make the grace of Christ known to those who are not yet saved so that they too might have the grace of the Lord Jesus with them just as his grace is with you. And such a response would be yet another proper response to the book of Revelation. In these final verses of Revelation, we are profoundly instructed. If these final verses reveal anything to us, they reveal that the Spirit of God wants this book to make you and I a more evangelistic people who tell others about Christ and invite them to come to him so that they might experience his amazing grace. This book should make us a people who speak to the lost and say, let the one who is thirsty come and drink of the water of life without cost. As Warren Wiersbe says, and I quote, a true understanding of the Bible or of Bible prophecy should both motivate us to obey God's word and to share God's invitation with the lost world. And that's why the Spirit of God coaches us here at the very end of this book in what the essence of our message to the world ought to be, and that is come, come, come to Jesus, drink freely from him and experience his grace as we have.
And that, brothers and sisters, brings us to the end of the book of Revelation with, I think, the most beautiful of images with us standing in a broken world and extending invitations and uttering pleas in two directions. We look up to Jesus and we say, come. And we look toward the world around us and we talk to people and say to them, come. Come to Jesus with me. While all the while we are enshrouded by the Shekinah glory of his ever-present grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus that is with us. And surrounded by such grace, there is a fitting final word that we can speak as we conclude this message and this series through Revelation. It's the word John ends with. It's the word, amen. And I want us to say this word together If you can say it with me and mean it, Jesus says, yes, I am coming quickly. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. John says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with all. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful to you for the coaching that you provide for us in these final verses, all the way from 6, verse 6 through verse 21, as you guide us and steer us and direct us towards what the responses are that you want to produce in us through all that we've encountered in this book. Lord, we may be finished with our verse-by-verse study of this book, but may it be that this book is not finished with us. I can honestly say Lord, though, that I know I have so far to go, that of all the books that I have preached through over the 30 years of pastoring here, that no book has changed me like this book has. I have not only, or not merely learned from this book, but I find that when I look up from this book and see myself and the world and things that are going on around me, I see see through the lens of this book and all that we have learned together. And I'm a different man today because of this book. And yet, Lord, I plead with you to not allow this book to be finished with me and the days to come as what we've learned in this book continue to cook inside of us that it would produce much fruit and further change and growth in us as individual brothers and sisters and in us as a church that we would be shaped profoundly in the days to come by the contents of this book. And above all, Lord, may we be a people who face with courage what's happening in our world today, but who also look up to you and daily say to you, come, Lord Jesus, And may we also look to those who are presently lost and say to them, I am coming to Jesus and satisfying my thirst through him. Won't you come too? Come. Come to Jesus together with me. And may many, Lord, come. And may they then say to others, 
still come. And may many be ushered into the kingdom through the ministry of those in this church as our ministry is shaped and encouraged and motivated by all that we have encountered in this great book. If there's any here this morning, Lord, that have not come to you, touch their hearts, save them right now, and draw them to yourself that they would come and drink of the water of life without cost and get their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb who shed his blood that they might have atonement for their sins. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,